It was uh, three years ago Monday that we moved here. This is kind of like the third year anniversary Sunday of our moving here. I just want to say thank you for inviting us here. It's been a real privilege to serve and more to be served by you all. And uh, I'm just so thankful that, that we're here. Thankful to you for your patience and for your friendship. And we loved you when we moved, but we love you more now three years later so thank you um let's get into galatians galatians 4 8 through 11 this morning and let's pray Uh, father you are worthy to receive all praise and glory and honor and you don't need us for what we can offer but we need you and we ask you uh and we seek you for for all things And in that, you receive the glory. And this morning, we seek you for a word from heaven. And we trust that you have revealed yourself to us through your servant, the Apostle Paul, and by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And now we ask that this same Spirit would open our eyes and soften our hearts to your word, that we can receive it and apply it with with gratitude this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Amen. This is God's word. I'm sure most of you, all of you, probably know more about the Iron Curtain than I do. You probably remember that being a thing. I think that ended in my lifetime, but I don't recall it. Um, But it was, of course, an uh, imaginary sort of border between Western Europe and what was the USSR that became less imaginary over time, and it became fences and border uh, towers and guards and dogs. (laughs) Um, It became an actual... Curtain, a border between the USSR and Western Europe. In the 80s, there was two Czech men who longed for freedom from the Iron Curtain. Of course, the Iron Curtain was uh, repressive, oppressive, and one of them had kind of a physics background, and he, he looked up one day and noticed the high voltage power lines going overhead, and he realized that they went from Czechoslovakia into Austria, which was free, and that they could build little zipline things and climb up there and zipline across into Austria. Um, and so these two men built these these little seats and and made their way one evening, climbed up and and hooked onto the power lines and ziplined into Austria and, and found uh, freedom that way. Now, of course, this was a, a dangerous operation. They could have been shot or electrocuted easily. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the top line is no, no power. It's just kind of a tension line. So the, 
power was beneath their feet. And I think, if I remember the story correctly, it was during a lightning storm, <laughs> which they were actually grateful for because it covered some of the noise, but that also was dangerous. So it was a very dangerous opp- uh, opportunity. And after all the planning and danger, um, and after finally obtaining their freedom, would they ever go back to the Iron Curtain? Voluntarily, Would they ever voluntarily say, oh, I'm just going to head back? Of course not. Paul writes in this passage to urge the people of Galatia who have found freedom from the bondage of the world not, not to go back, not to go back into bondage to enslavement, not to volunteer to go back there. That would have been very much like these checkmen volunteering to go back to life behind the curtain. And so I want to explore Paul's plea to do this, uh, to not go back, by asking five simple questions this morning of our text. And the, the first question from verse 8 is, Why do men worship false gods? Why do we worship false gods? Paul begins in, in verse 8 by reminding the Galatian people of what they were formerly, that they were formerly idolaters, and they were uh, unbelieving slaves but behind the walls, if you will. I tend to be appalled at the unbelieving world, um, which that being appalled really manifests itself in sort of a cynical pessimism. And I think more, more than anything, I'm calloused. But there is an anger that burns beneath the surface of my consciousness. We ask ourselves, how could they think that murdering babies is acceptable? They're fools. They spit on God's design for the family. They're, they're all a bunch of useless, debauched, depraved miscreants. Right? That's kind of deep down in there, I think. And those sentiments aren't entirely misplaced. I think David rightly says in Psalm 26, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. But it's helpful to peek behind the curtain and answer the question, why do men worship false gods? Why do we do that? Why are we the way that we are? In fact, why were we the way we were before Christ? Because those people, those miscreants, are not any worse than we were, and we're not any better than they are. It's all of grace that we have been changed Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So it, it's so frustrating to us. We ask, why can't, we, why can't they see? What are they missing? Why can't they see what's so obvious to us? And they can't. The answer is they can't see because they are blind. It pays to remember that because it's, it's no more that they are stupid than it is that you are smart. I hate to break that to you. <laughs> it's when God lifts the blinders of our, from our eyes that we begin to see. It's when God breaks the chains from our ankles that we begin to walk free. So that's Paul, how Paul describes the former unbelieving life of these 
uh, Galatian Christians. He says in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. I think of this enslavement as almost like an enslavement to drugs or something, a drug addiction. And the reason a person can't escape drug addiction, well, there, there are many, but one is that he lacks the vision to see the bigger picture. He needs what he craves now. He only sees the here and now. And he's, we, we, like that drug addict, are enslaved to those false gods because our eyes are darkened. We lack the vision to see beyond the immediate He says, we did not know God. That was the problem. We needed the light of the knowledge of the revelation of God to open our eyes and to shine on us. We were, he says, enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. That's an interesting phrase. Who are these, those that are by nature are not gods? In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul equates sacrificing to idols with making offerings to demons. Ephesians 2.2 says that when we were unbelievers, we followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we worked slavishly in this world and for its king, that is the devil. That's who we were formerly. But it was through the good news of the gospel that God delivered us from that and transferred us out of that domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It's almost like a a worker being transferred for his job from one country to another. He's been transferred and his geography is different and his boss is different. So the answer to that question, why do men believe in false gods? It's because they don't have the light of the knowledge of the revelation of God and and they're enslaved to those principalities that are false gods, that are not gods. When we understand the condition of unbelieving men, it helps us to understand both them and us. Their their status and our status. We have a clearer head about these things because... The land on which they live is the land from which we all have hailed. So we are biblically called to hate the world and all it stands for. But we have to remember unbelievers are still fellow image bearers of God. They're not mere stupid idiots without a modicum of sense. They are fallen human beings, lacking biblical wisdom, hopelessly and happily caged by this cruel and deceptive taskmaster. And the way to attack the world is not a drop kick to the face. It's not ad hominem attacks. That's how they would attack us. Cruelty and venom are worldly tactics, but we attack the kingdom of darkness by preaching the gospel with grace and mercy. So, in fact, we have a great deal of common ground with the unbeliever. We were once like they are. We were hopelessly and happily enslaved. And we've been freed by pure grace. 
not like a worker who's worked for a wage, but like a child. On Christmas morning, we've received that as a gift. So I do exhort you to hate the world in a biblical way, uh, but to hate the world biblically. If our hate for the world can't cohabitate with a love for our enemy, we have a misplaced and unbiblical hatred. Uh, When King Agrippa asked Paul, would you in a short time persuade me to be a Christian? Paul responded, whether short or long, I would, that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, might become a Christian, except for these chains, he said. Paul was among the greatest warriors for the faith of all time, and his hatred for the enemy really led him into the belly of the beast, the Roman government. And his strategy was, love the unbeliever, preach Christ's gospel. He longed to see them as he is, as a Christian, because he knew he was once as they are. Paul did not know God, but now this has changed for him. He he quite literally received the light of the knowledge of God by the appearing of Jesus. And we have received the same light, if in less dramatic terms. We have been delivered from the former state into the present state of knowing God. How does that change occur? And what does knowing God look like in the Christian life? And that's our second question is, how do we know God? From verse 9, how do we know God? The word change is a popular word. Uh, Every politician who's ever campaigned has campaigned on the the, uh, promises of change. I remember in 08, you know, seeing those Obama posters with the word change. It's not hard to identify that the world needs to change solutions that are difficult. Every self-help guru offers to reveal the secrets to change your life. Uh, We're all on a quest to change. I confess that I, too, am on the the change bandwagon. I, I preach change. But I think that the Bible actually offers real solutions for change. I put all my eggs in that basket. What what do Christ's apostles tell us about change? What do the inspired writers say? What does the Bible say? And it's kind of like that old proverb, it's not what you know, it's who you know. For Paul, change hinges on who you know. He says in verse 8, Formerly when you did not know God, and then in, in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, that's, that's what change hinges upon, is who you know. But what does that mean, to know God? It has to mean more than knowing about God. We could spend our whole lives philosophizing and, and reading the best theology and having our minds wrapped around the most precise theology and still not know God. As we read in 1 Corinthians 1, for since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Knowing God is knowing Him as He is revealed 
in the preached word and in the word made flesh. And knowing God is is being made partakers of that divine fellowship. If you turn over to John 17, uh, the Apostle John writes time and time again that the world does not know God, but those to whom God has been revealed, they know God. It's that revelation that counts. You want to do an interesting study, I look up the word know or knowledge in John. It's just everywhere. So, a few, a smattering of verses from John 17, uh, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you. He's talking to the Father. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Then in uh, verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and have believed that you sent me. Then one more, uh, 24 through 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, uh, these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be made, may be in them, and I in them. Uh, so knowing God is not a matter of effort or merit, but it's a matter of history, as what happened to us. So that our eyes of our heart have been enlightened by His self-revelation so that we can now see Him and enjoy fellowship with Him. That's what it means to know God. Now part of growing in Christ is this growing realization that the more we know Christ, the more we realize that we don't know. It begins to dawn on us, our knowledge is feeble at best. Which is why Paul qualifies his statement. He says, yes, it is true that we have come to know God, but it is God's knowledge of us that really counts. He says in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. And that is an ever-increasing comfort to the maturing Christian We're increasingly aware that it's not our grasp of Christ that counts, but it's His grasp of us. I like to put Abel on my shoulders on hikes, and I can tell when he doesn't quite trust that I have a good grasp on him by his hands pinching my face really hard. But if I were to let go of him, he he would fall. It's the same with our Father. It's our Father's hold on us that counts. It's because He knows us, not that we know Him, that we're held secure. So to know and be known by God is the most precious treasure we could have in this world. To have been freed from slavery and to have been brought into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit is a glory that we won't wrap our heads around in this life or the next. It's too great. 
We were willing slaves to a brutal master, but we've been brought in as members of the divine family. The contrast between bondage and freedom here can't be made any sharper. So, having basked in the light of the glory of the sons of God, as Christians have, how can darkness still hold so much appeal to us? That's our third question is, why does darkness tempt us? From the latter half of verse 9, why does darkness tempt us? I titled this sermon, Don't Poke Your Eyes Out. Cohen was wondering what that means. I hope you're listening, buddy, because I'm going to tell you why I named it that. But if you imagine when Jesus wiped mud on the guy's eyes and restored his sight, imagine if he voluntarily went back into blindness. What if he poked his eyes out? How foolish would that be? It's a silly question because that would be a silly thing to do. But really, it is the very thing we are tempted to do when we find ourselves looking back with fondness at the old darkness. It's like saying, I want to be blind again. Verse 9 again, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? How, How can you do that? How can you turn back again? We are tempted by the darkness constantly. Why is that? Why are we so captivated by by darkness? Why are we not so captivated by the glory and light of God that we refuse to take our eyes away? Why does godliness make us drowsy and worldliness make our neurons fire? Were it not for God's loving restraint, we would jab our own eyes out in an instant. Because... Our natural man adores the darkness. Like the Egyptians in the wilderness, we're drawn back to slavery. We want to go back. Those known, tangible comforts of slavery in Egypt were more appealing than the challenges of a wilderness crossing and the untangible hope of future promise. The known, tangible comforts of common grace can be more attractive than the difficulties we encounter on our journey toward the celestial city. It's fascinating here. Paul's speaking probably mostly to Gentile converts. And in their prior blindness, they were probably devotees to pagan gods and religious practices. Uh, And in his mind now, to devote oneself to now the Mosaic laws and customs is to go back to the same slavery and basically the same thing as paganism. Both represent a moralism derived from men and a self-derived righteousness. Both he describes as weak and worthless elemental principles of the world. Both would enslave those who are devoted to them. Which brings up kind of an important aside. It is an aside, but it's important. It is, doesn't that make the Old Testament saves saints slaves of darkness? Calvin's response to that is really, I can't beat it. He says, to the fathers, that is to the Old Testament saints, they were not only profitable exercises and aids to piety, 
that is the Mosaic customs, they were not only profitable and exercises and aids to piety, but efficacious means of grace. But then their whole value lay in Christ, and in the appointment of God, the the false apostles, on the other hand, neglecting the promises, endeavored to oppose the ceremonies to Christ, as if Christ alone were not sufficient. So that's the problem, is those old ceremonies pointed to Christ, but now these men are pitting the two essentially against one another, is what he says. So, that aside, aside, the reason the darkness still tempts us is because we're still sinners. Darkness abides in our souls. Again, it's like the allure of drugs. I remember some of my seminary buddies were into drugs in their old life, and they commented, I remember having a conversation about how the smell of skunk, because they were marijuana smokers, the smell of skunk was had this this strange allure to them still. We're drawn back, drawn back into the old darkness of the old man. And the fact is, particularly as we endure hardships of our sojourn through this life, and as our patience is tried while we wait for that promised land, Egypt is always going to be calling us to go back. That old familiar Egypt will always have its allure to us. Now, the Egypt that the Egyptian or the Galatians wanted to go back to was these mosaic practices, which leads us to our fourth question: Is what are we tempted to go back to? What are we tempted to go back to? Uh, Paul gives an example of the things they were being attracted by. He says in verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. And one commentator pointed out it's probably not helpful to get too detailed about what exactly those were, but essentially it was the Old Testament saints or the Jewish calendar. Um, So it's not that observing holidays is some kind of a sin. You know, we read in Romans 14, that the the one person esteems the day as better than another, while another esteems all day, days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. So, believe it or not, uh, observing Christmas is not a mandatory Christian activity. I believe it's helpful. In fact, Stuart and I were talking the other night. We agreed we should be celebrating more holy days in the church calendar, not less. But that's our opinion. It's not mandatory. The problem is when these days become compulsory and when we, they begin to be something by which we commend ourselves to God. And I've noticed a strange phenomenon around here. People are kind of obsessed with Jewish holy days and rituals. Uh, you know, practicing the Feast of Booze and Passover, and I've heard of some practicing the 613, 613 Levitical laws, which is impossible, by the way. Uh, <laughs> the claim is Jesus did them, so we should do them, and while they're not necessary, they make us feel closer to God. Now, I could see ethnic Jews celebrating Jewish holidays, kind of in the spirit of Romans 14, but when Gentiles are captivated by the beauty of this religion and 
when they're presented as norms for the New Testament Christian, I begin to get concerned. And that really, I think, is the sense of what Paul is talking about. That's why he's shocked. He says, why on earth would you Gentiles from this, what is modern-day Turkey, from Galatia, begin to adopt the Jewish calendar? It makes no sense, except for these false teachers are making them compulsory for Christian living. Or at least making them attractive add-ons to the gospel. And we do that. There are things that we make essential for Christian practice that aren't. Uh, consider pietism. Making a specific uh, devotional regimen mandatory. Or on, on another side, perhaps we're drawn to the beauty and the majesty of Roman Catholic cathedrals and liturgy. Maybe that's our exodus that we're being drawn back to. Uh, Another thing is, is deep down as Americans, even if we hate it, we all wrestle with consumerism to the point that it affects our Christian expression. I had an a example of this. A lady emailed me probably a year ago. She said, I listened to your preaching online and I liked what I heard just straight from the Bible. And she asked, how many people are at your church because I want to try and find a church home that's comfortable, that's not too big and not too small. <laughs> that's consumerism. And I told her how what our size was. I never heard from her again. <laughs> Similar thing is we're drawn in our day and age in a media culture to celebrity preachers. Uh, we, we can get so drawn into one guy's teaching and mindset and vantage point that we kind of fall into that error of the Corinthians. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. So these are all dangers, and there's thousands more and sins that we commit. Um, but if left unchecked, these things can become trap doors and, and swing us back into darkness. Anything really can. Paul sees that these people are so buying into this Jewish thing that they're actually observing the Jewish calendar and that is concerning to him. And so he says uh, that he's concerned that all of his labor for them has been in vain. And the question I chose to ask on this point is not my favorite wording, but it's what I came up with, is how can we make our minister's work effective? How can we make our minister's work effective? Uh, it's a weird question. It's interesting. Paul, Paul clearly thinks that if they're observing these days, months, seasons, and years, they're volunteering to go back into slavery, then his labor is in some sense in vain. It's not effective. Paul desires that his labor not be in vain. He wants it to be effective. I think... When ministry isn't um, succeeding in man's terms, we, we tend to quote often Isaiah 55:11, "God's word will not return to him void," which is a good thing to quote. Paul, uh, I don't think he really believes that if they abandon Christ for these false teachings, then the word going forth has not affected what God intended to affect. I don't think that's what he means by saying it was in vain. Throughout the letter, Paul's concern is that the gospel itself not be rendered hollow or void. He doesn't want to void the gospel. 
few examples from chapter 2, verse 2. He checked in with the other apostles to make sure that he was not running in vain. If his gospel had been different from theirs, he would have been running in vain. And then in 2.21, he says that if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. It voided Christ's death. He says, but this, his gospel does not nullify the grace of God. And then finally in 3 verse 4, he says that their suffering for Christ's sake, for all that they had suffered for his name was in vain if they were seeking righteousness on their own merits. So he's concerned that the gospel not be hollowed out or made void. Uh, it's kind of like the Easter egg without any candy in it, that plastic hollow shell. It has promise from the outside, but you open it up and it's empty and a great disappointment. That's what he's saying. I don't want this gospel to be void for you. I don't want it to be empty in vain. If you think about it here, his comment is really a serious accusation and one that should kind of startle the Galatians. Uh, what the false teachers were probably saying was something like, here's the true gospel. And it's basically the same thing Paul's saying, just add a few more things in to get a more robust gospel. And Paul says, no, if you adopt these additions to the gospel, you're dropping the true gospel to pick up the false one. He says, basically, I may as well never have placarded Christ before your eyes and may never, well, never have preached Christ to you. Because you're just going to go back again to the darkness and to the slavery voluntarily. And the gospel then is of no use to you. And that really is Paul's warning in this passage is don't poke your eyes out. Don't voluntarily go back to slavery. Don't choose the darkness. And isn't that a strange warning to give people who, according to verse 9, have come to know God and even have been known by God? Is it really even possible for such a person to make the gospel void in their lives? We have to remember a couple of things on that point. First, not even Paul knows individual hearts. Uh, he writes to churches. Churches under attack and in danger of being swept away into falsehood. And there are individuals who would claim to know God, who do not know God. So he's kind of splashing water in these people's face and says, you, be you better turn around because you're careening toward a cliff. And it will be too late. The other group of people in the churches are true confessors. And one of the primary marks of a true confessor is that they will heed biblical warnings. And with great care, a true confessor will admit quickly, I'm always in danger of wandering into falsehood. I need warnings from God. It's only the grace of God that preserves me. And in fact, it is these teachings and warnings of the apostles that are one of God's primary means of grace in preserving our faith. So Paul graciously but urgently warns these people, do not go back, do not point, poke your eyes out, do not volunteer to go back into the darkness after having seen such a glorious light. He urges them to keep their eyes on the glory of the revelation of God as revealed in His Word and in His Son. And for us it's hard because for now we see through a glass dimly. And so... 
the dim light, the darkness is, is so attractive and there's so many shiny objects to distract us. The Egypt will call to us. But we must look ahead to the promise to hold on to the hope that one day we will see face to face. Amen.